Merry Christmas, and welcome to the Isle of Man, a new program dealing with concepts and constructs in modern masculinity. I'm Sam Mickens. With me this holiday season, Zach Pennington. Zach, how is your Christmas? So far, it's been a busy Christmas. I've been keeping myself occupied uh, with toiling and uh, with uh, Christmas shopping, a little bit of uh, holiday cheer. Tell me about the holiday cheer. Well, let's see. I had a, I attended a really lovely uh, fete at mm-hmm. my friend uh, Sam Mickens' uh, f- familial home. Mm-hmm. It was really nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were m- many babies and mm-hmm. uh, lots of uh, revelry. Mm-hmm. Um, that's mainly it. I, got, I bought a small tree for my house, a shrub, a little shrub tree. Mm-hmm. Decorated it, decked it. Deck the hall. You been doing any wassling? Not as of yet. I mean, it's early. Well, it's late in the season, I guess. But I've got a couple more days left. A couple days to wassle. Yeah. That's good. How's your How's your Christmas been, Sam? <laughs> uh, it's been pretty good. Yeah. Um, this is a big. This is a big year for you. This is like a, you've got a. You've got a child who mm-hmm. is kind of cognizant enough to, to be participating. He's like half sentient. So yeah. he'll, he's in the weird twilight um, realm where he will really engage with and like enjoy whatever happens, but he won't actually have any memory of it ever. Mm-hmm. So that's weird. But, you know, I think it's our duty to make him enjoy it, even if you won't remember it later. Mm-hmm. Imprinting that. Especially, you know, these days where like you know, Google's taking a video of everything you do. You got to make sure you're doing a good job even mm-hmm. before they can remember it because they could just pull it up later on the thing, on yeah. the serve and cloud. Um, but yeah, I'm excited. Christmas, I love it. Read, uh, I saw that great uh, R. Kelly uh, video. Did you see that on, on the Huffington Post? I uh, I read a little bit about it, but I didn't actually watch it. R. Kelly had a, had a you know, complicated but fascinating uh, showing on the Huffington Post where um, he was promoting his new album, The Buffet. He, he pronounces it that way. I'm not doing it in like a pretentious way. He calls it The Buffet. But uh, his record, The Buffet, this woman, you know, she, she was very super polite and super professional, intelligent, and, and, you know, just asking him questions. And eventually she got to questions about, you know, how do you deal with or reconcile uh, a fan base who loves your music and loves your artistry, but has problems with these allegations and, you know, issues in your personal life and increase. And at first he was kind of trying to be fun, whatever game, but increasingly he just got really unable to even approach this material and, eventually walked off the interview, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, but it was an interesting interview. It's, a lot of people have cited it as, like, this case of, like, R. Kelly's such a monster, and he's such a... He, he hates women, he's such an anti-feminist and stuff, but... You don't think that's true? I do think it's... <laughs> I, I do think that some of those things are true, but I, I also think that there is a long and proud legacy of... Um, great artists who are not able to actually intellectually engage with 
the more complicated issues in their lives. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, R. Kelly is not the first great popular music artist who cannot adequately defend and intellectually engage with all of the complicated possible repercussions of his personal behavior. R. Kelly is not a rigorous intellectual, you're saying. Uh, I would say that. (laughs) Yes, I would say that R. Kelly's not a rigorous intellectual. I'm not saying that he's stupid, but Mm -hmm. I I, I do think that he is not a person uh, that engages in certain spheres of thought for his own necessary benefit and self uh, maintenance. Mm. So <laughs> anyway, it's Christmas. It is. Zach, uh, real quick, favorite Christmas song, favorite Christmas carol. Carol or recording? Let's go with recording. Okay. Uh, my favorite Christmas recording is probably... Frankie Lyman's uh, It's Christmas Once Again. That's probably my favorite. Okay. And your least favorite Christmas carol? Little Drummer Boy. I really can't stand (laughs) Little Drummer Boy. Yeah, it's not the best. Uh, How about you? What's your favorite carol? Well, obviously... Oh, holy night. Yeah. Although this year I've I've become very partial to I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, which I was not that familiar with before. Yeah. But oh, holy night's got to take the number one spot just for its sheer... Fall on your knees. Puccini-esque, just like... Mm-hmm. Blacow. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Uh, so, I think um, without further ado, Zach, unless you have any Christmas wishes... No, I, you know, just the traditional peace on earth and uh, goodwill and, uh, you know, uh, hoping for a better 2016, better showing from all men of the world. You know, we're going to get to a brand new segment. Mm -hmm. It's the first time we're doing this, but it's going to be an ongoing blockbuster uh, recurring segment. Uh, We're going to go to... Our cultural report with our man on the street, Allie Hankins. What's she talking about? She's talking about Creed. We go now to our man on the street, cultural reporter, Allie Hankins. Allie? Sam, Zach. You saw the film Creed. <clears throat> I did. And uh, Wait, I'm sorry. I saw the perfect film Creed. Okay. Um, the film is a, uh, it's kind of a passing of the torch. It's a generational story where, where the, yeah. you know, the Rocky franchise that we've come to know and love since the late 70s is, is sort of being passed on to a new protagonist. Uh, the mantle is being passed on. Um, obviously, you know, there are echoes and ghosts of the past coming through this story. So can, can you talk a little bit about that, about the role of, you know, the, uh, the, the shadows or the specters of the past in, in the film Creed? 
Well, I, I should also mention, I've never seen any of the other Rocky movies, just so everyone knows. Um, yeah. So I guess something I noticed, there, there were a few moments that stood out to me. For example, a moment when they're in uh, Rocky Balboa's restaurant. Mm -hmm. What's that restaurant called? It's called Adrian's. Ah. And when does he open that restaurant? In a past film? He opened it between uh, Rocky V and Rocky Balboa. You may not know this having not seen the other films, but... Um, Adrian was the name of his wife. Who was I did know that. Talia Shire. So he, he opened this restaurant um, after she died uh, in, in honor of her. Okay. Well, I feel like it's an interesting thing that that is the space in which all three fathers are in the room for the first time. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got Apollo's photo in there. We've got uh, Rocky Balboa, who is this sort of second, you know, this desirable second father figure to Adonis. Mm -hmm. And then we've got Adonis, who is clearly on his way to trying to become his father while simultaneously rejecting his father's legacy. So I thought that was quite a, an interesting meeting of the three father figures and also saw this idea of, you know, specters of the past in when Adonis arrives. Where, where does Rocky live exactly? He lives in Philadelphia. Ah, Philadelphia. You've heard of it. Um, when Adonis shows up in Philadelphia and encounters that big statue that was made. Of Rocky. Of Rocky. Yeah. Coming, coming to terms, you know, coming face to face with this monument of a man who has been... Uh, a specter in this in Adonis's life for many years, and then um, then we see Rocky Balboa sitting in a cemetery, speaking to monuments of his dead wife and someone else. Who's that? Brother-in-law. Brother-in-law. Mm -hmm. What's their story? Uh, Adrian and Polly's story. Yeah. Well, who's yeah? What's Polly about? Polly was a really drunk, violent, uh, kind of just shithead who, mm. who uh, had a heart of gold. Uh, yeah. Uh, was kind of a uh, barnacle to Rocky's uh, ascendant whale. And, you know, he was, he, mm. he, he, he sort of grounded Rocky <laughs> with a lot of homespun morality and hung around in the previous films as a reminder of where he came from and was on his team, but was also like kind of a wasteoid who would like get into a fight with a pinball machine and Rocky would have to bail him out and stuff like that. Okay. Polly was, Polly was kind of Rocky's foil and kind of buffoon, you know, uh, Shakespearean fool kind of character in his stories. Okay. Now it's an interesting movie and an interesting kind of a boxing story in that you know the 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 role of of privilege versus disadvantage is very unusually constructed for the specific character of Adonis Creed in the movie <clears throat> so so what did you think about about that specifically about how it dealt with you know he he was a character who for the first several years of his life was very disadvantaged and growing up in group homes and fighting for his life and then was very advantaged for many years and and his advantage caused a lot of people in the film 
at the time of his adulthood to disregard him, but but he kind of is a is a weird hybrid of those two. Yeah. Backgrounds. <clears throat> well, I think I think something that came up for me in that was like when I first see Adonis like stick at his desk job or whatever, it's a surprise because I've just seen him fighting in Mexico, right? So then he's he's like this he's situated inside of society in this very different way that I find surprising given the first scene or the first fight or whatever. Um, and so I think that that story or that arc for this character, I think is sort of echoed in some of the interactions between like what I said earlier about getting this wisdom or getting this uh, information from these elders, right? And sort of like going back to these pre-technological, sort of pre-modern uh, ways of interacting with with mass or with other men or with uh, people in general, like this sort of aggression, this uh, sort of bottling up of things, and then these this sort of really rhythmic pacing of explosion and release. And I think that, um, like, him rejecting this sort of, you know, nine-to-five job or whatever in the pursuit of, like, living this life that is all about this more steady sort of syncopated, like, uh, bottling or harnessing of energy um, is something that I found really interesting and seems somehow related to this. So you feel like Adonis's relationship to his perhaps better more privileged life and career tract and, and uh, casting that aside for this much more difficult, uh, dangerous life of a boxer that was also, of course, his father's life. Right. Uh, y- you feel like that's intrinsically linked to some kinds of ideas of, of modern masculinity and what masculinity is like in a world where so many professions are not related to the body and related to physical strength. Yes, I would say so. So in this film, in in Creed, we're introduced to um, Adonis Creed's uh, love interest, uh, who's an R&B singer named Bianca. And what were your thoughts about Bianca as a character? And in terms of the mythology that they're building in the film Creed, um, what did you think about the the, the female character, the romantic foil uh, of Bianca? Uh, I thought that there was, I don't know, I have a lot of, I guess, pre-existing associations with this sort of storyline where the feminine or the, like, I don't know, this temptress, this temptation sort of takes the masculine uh, or the male figure and sort of plunges them into the depths of this like disorientation and sort of loss of self mildly for a minute and they get a little confused and you know he first encounters her because her music's too loud and he's like I'm upstairs trying to sleep I gotta get to fucking the gym in the morning I gotta get strong I'm working on becoming myself and she's like you know, fuck you, basically. Pardon me for undoing you a little bit. I'm down here going deaf, mm-hmm. fucking trying to trying to do my thing for as long as I can before I lose the ability to do my thing. Mm-hmm. And fuck your ego. My ego is more important than yours, basically. Yeah. But then, of course, she's also this really, like, sympathetic character later, or, or like, sympathetic to him because 
he's like, oh yeah, you know, my dad was a fighter, so I want to fight. And she's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. You know, she's kind of like, she gets this sort of male ego thing. It's part of her vocabulary already. I think there are a lot of interesting power dynamic flips that happen between those two characters. I mean, ultimately, of course, he's sort of the more dominant one, but I think there's, um, I don't know. I think she she's always sort of trying to maintain her status or I don't know because he like gets really jealous of that dude at her show and almost fucks up like this really big opportunity for her Mm -hmm. and his sort of like insecurity like when he's in a when he's in a period of loss like when he's losing grip on something he thought he had because I guess that happens after his coach gets sick or whatever his coach being Rocky Balboa gets sick And so, like, everything's crumbling around him, and he can't do anything. Like, the only way he knows how to deal with that is to destroy something else or something. So he's just out there like, well, my fucking ego has no limits, and I'm just going to fucking ruin everything for you, too. But she's very quick to, like, kind of literally slam the door in his face and be like, you fucked up. I respect her character in these moments. I shouldn't say that. Respect. That's not fair. I was just following the uh, sort of uh, exchange of power between these two characters. Right. And, and like how he can like, the first time he goes into her apartment, like he walks right in. He doesn't even like stop at the door at all. He like walks directly all the way through her home, like fully penetrates it without any like second guessing. And then they have like this romantic evening of making music together. And he's like singing and rapping and being really clever and sort of like, almost being a little condescending, like, oh, your thing's so easy. Like I'm here doing what you do. This is really comfortable. It's romantic. Even like we're becoming enmeshed in these things. And then the only way she can relate with his world is literally outside, like a caged off with, you know, ropes in like environment where she's just watching him sort of destroy himself. Right. Like she's not part of his corner team. She's not part of his corner team. Cutting his eye and whatnot. Except for in that one moment where he's warming up and then has to take a shit. But she's, like, resting quietly against the mirror, like, at the very back of the space once again. Like, she's, like, this fully... She's enveloped in this world, but she's not participating all the time. Can we talk about the sex turtle while we're talking about their dynamic? Yeah. I mean, I... My questions about the sex turtle is, like... Is there a sex turtle in any of the other movies? Like, is this turtle? Who is this turtle? Was this Adrian's turtle? It's complicated, but here's the thing. (laughs) The first Rocky film, which in many ways this is... You know, this calls back to the first Rocky more than this is, And these are the questions that I have for you all, but apparently I'm not supposed to be asking any questions. So, but I'm glad that you're bringing it up. Please continue, Sam. Um... It seems like the two of you might be dealing with your own kind of power flip dynamics right now. But anyway, that's not saying anything. Anyway, <laughs> here's the deal with the turtles. In the in the very first Rocky movie, uh, Adrian works in a pet store, so so there's a lot of pet related um, flirting that goes on between Rocky oh. and, and Rocky. He buys these two turtles who he later names Cuff and Link. Wow. Okay. 
Yeah. And so he has these two turtles cuff and link through a few of the films. Yeah. So one would assume the idea is that this is one of those turtles still living. Or maybe Rocky has just continued to replace them with other turtles. Right. But there is a, there, those turtles do have a role in the history of the franchise. That's so interesting. Yeah. So, I had no idea. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I feel like without that context, I mean, with that context, that shot is very strange. Yes. Without that context, that would be like <laughs> totally. It was like, mind psychedelic. It's psychedelic. I think, I think my movie. notes in it were like full, like all caps, like right. turtle sex, question mark. Right. So, so as, as a uh, viewer who did not have the context of the other Rocky films. Right. What did you think when that camera moved from them having sex on the couch to a turtle? I was just trying to assign all kinds of, uh, you know, symbolism to this turtle. I was like, you know, you've got a shell. Right. This turtle's out of its shell. This turtle's like up against the glass. Mm -hmm. This turtle lives. Lamp. Heat lamp. This turtles are like half amphibians or whatever. Right. Uh, so we're like balancing these two worlds, like this watery world, this feminine world, this Mm -hmm. like other hard, more rigid world, the turtle shell. So that's where my mind went with that. So in in that, okay. So the, so, so you're thinking it's amphibian and that it's combining the, the oceanic. Yes. Watery elements of of Bianca and her reverbed out FKA twig. Pulsating. fucking deep waves of sensual yeah melodious energy moving around yeah the harsh arid world yes. of the boxing gym and and adonis creed absolutely that's interesting i hadn't thought mm-hmm. about that i mean because he yeah he's constantly wandering into her little her like oceanic as you say world of of throbbing fucking pulsing beats Mm -hmm. and lyrics that are which i wrote down things like uh i want you to take me i want you to take me down Mm -hmm. And so they share, I mean, in a way, they really share this desire to be dominated or to be or to have to resist being defeated. Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay, so he's a boxer. Yes. He's he's con- he he really people, wants to fight. would suggest that a boxer has a desire to be dominated. Really? Well, maybe dominated by the difficulty of, exactly. of the enterprise but not dominated by their opponent no but they are okay fair but i don't know maybe kind of to succumb to, to succumb to the and maybe it's not so much their opponent mm-hmm. but maybe it's succumbing to their desire to have to fight for survival mm-hmm. like succumbing to that like just fucking trust falling right into that sort of pattern of like, kill me, you know, kill or be killed basically. And I feel like in her, in her world, when he sees her singing and talking about being submissive sexually, but she's not really talking about being submissive sexually, even though the lyrics might suggest she is, she, I feel like, is really the dom in the situation. Mm-hmm. And I feel like our conversation. Yeah, we had, yeah. 
Go on. You guys talked about this? Yeah, we talk about it all the time. Dom, sub dom, dom, dom. dynamics. Yeah, I mean, we, yeah, pretty much every time we hang out. Right. Up one way or That's another. cool. Um, <clears throat> and she's like, she's also sort of, you know, she's fully diving into this world that she knows she's going to lose at any minute. She knows it's going to leave her. Right. How necessary do you think the introduction of her hearing loss was? Very necessary. The metaphorical framework. Incredibly necessary. And and describe why that is. Well, because I think it much like you see this sort of this sort of training slash illness sequence where Adonis is like getting stronger and Rocky is like falling into death. You also have Adonis getting stronger and his romantic interest, if we could call her that, because I don't really know how he feels about Bianca, to be honest. I think it's but like romantic, yeah. Okay, well, uh, his, uh, whatever, this, this seductress or whatever is... Um, his dime piece. His dime piece. I don't know what that means. Okay, go on. Um, <laughs> uh, she, so this, this woman that actually exudes a lot of power, so much so that he, like, almost fucking, like forgets who he is like he he moves out of that apartment he moves out of the apartment that she lives in to go live with rocky and i understand that maybe this is some traditional like rite of passage in a boxer's life but mm-hmm. let's not forget that he had to like they have sex or they have an intimate night in her apartment and then he's like out of there because he knows he could destroy she could destroy him well, there is. So she's also not going to be powerful for that long because once she loses her hearing, that's it. So she's not actually a threat to his strength, right? except for in that moment. But in the long term, she's just like. There is an age old kind of there's there's kind of an adage in boxing <laughs> that they reference in the film right i where, kind of where boxers are generally encouraged to be abstinent in the in the time leading up to a fight right and i thought a lot about this right and i the idea is that the that yeah. sex somehow saps them of a necessary energy for the boxing match of course which i mean it makes complete sense um and i didn't know that but i definitely thought a lot about that in watching this film and in the like in the fight sequences like and how you know there's definitely a rhythm in this movie where things really ramp up and then they get fully depleted and then they ramp up again and then they're fully depleted and i feel like that is definitely related to the idea of um, harnessing power and releasing it at these very like particular and timed and intentional moments rather than just like, you know, climaxing all over the place. <laughs> right. So the boxing, I enjoyed the boxing in that it's, it was, it was such a good, um, update of, of of the kind of boxing that we see in the rocks the yeah. Rocky movies, which is yeah. nothing like real boxing no there's just endlessly connecting like 
20 uppercuts in a row, like these huge exchanges where dudes are just hitting each other in the face over yeah. and over again. Yeah. Um, but as you know, what, what were your thoughts about the choreography of the boxing, the, the style yeah. of the boxing, the yeah. uh, mechanics of the fight and the rests and the rounds yeah. and all of that? I found that all to be uh, super intriguing. So I thought the choreography of it, like the way it moved, was really beautiful. Actually, I was quite moved by it. I thought that when, um, you know, I was really wondering what the trigger was going to be for Adonis to finally fight the way we all know he can fight, you know. And I don't really know if I pinpointed it exactly, but when he did finally find a rhythm where he was able to sort of get some ground where he wasn't the one constantly being advanced on, but he was finally like able to sort of advance toward his opponents. Um, the rhythm of the punches and all of these things changed really dramatically and felt, um, I, I don't know. It was like a really noticeable shift in, the tempo, the pacing, the rhythm of the fight. And I thought that that was a really um, incredible thing to see. I felt like I walked away from this movie with a renewed interest or curiosity about the hero, about heroes in general, about a hero's journey, life, what needs to be rejected in order to gain your own legacy and what needs to be embraced in order to find a strength to move through the trials that you come across. Um, and I thought the ending was great. I think uh, he could not have won that fight because it would have meant killing his father's legacy in some way, in my opinion. You know, he, ha he lost one eye. Had he lost the other, like, it would basically be this straight up Oedipus reference or whatever, or something. Um, I can also tell you, in the first, in the, <laughs> in, the, it, in the first Rocky movie, a big part of his final fight is that Rocky has one of his eyes swollen shut. See, okay. It's kind of are, mirroring in that. In that, these respect. are the things over and over again in my 18 pages of stoner notes. I will say that one of the things that continued to come up was, is this something <laughs> referential? Is this referential? Well, I, yes. But I like, this, I, I like this. I like this idea that the one eye closing is like half Oedipus. Yes. Because that's totally off the wall and interesting. <laughs> I mean, it's fascinating. He's swollen eye away from killing his father. From being at a Tell him no waste my time. Tell him no waste my time. No, no, no. Tell him no waste my time. 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 No, no, no. Pray to the Lord. Our guest this week is uh, Anna Berry. She is a very talented uh, singer and performer who you may remember from the band These Are Powers and who is currently, amongst other pursuits, engaged in the um, Los Angeles Queen Corps band Hit Bargain. Anna. Hello. Tell us about your father. <laughs> wow. Um, so my father... Uh, where, to, where to begin? <laughs> 
was uh, in the Air Force. Um, met my mother when he was stationed in Thailand during the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. They hit it off despite having to use uh, dictionaries to communicate. Um, he kind of won some favor with my mother and her friend by um, inadvertently placing himself lower than the two of them. They were seated in a booth in a cafe and he got down on one knee to talk to them. And in the Thai culture, it's this is seen as a, a sign of respect uh, because you've placed your head lower than the other person's head. Mm. Um, so yeah, he accidentally won himself some favor with that, even though uh, my mother's friend was trying to convince him that they were not prostitutes. Mm-hmm. And at that time, uh, it wasn't so common for there to be a lot of Westerners in Thailand. So her family was very afraid that he was going to be very violent since that's all that they knew of Americans was through film. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so shortly after they met, uh, I was born in uh, the Mars Air Force Base in Riverside, California. Mm-hmm. And uh, he continued to be like an independent contractor um, with Iran in 79. An independent military contract. Yeah, yeah. I guess he flew helicopters or flying shit houses, as they called them. Um, and then I uh, was really into Ross Perot, uh, and so decided to move the family after a couple years of flitting about to Texas, where we settled in Dallas, and he started working in computers. He moved to Texas just because he was into Ross Perot? He was into Ross Perot, and at that time in the 80s, there was a little bit of a boom. Um, so, But yeah, he really liked uh, how Ross Perot handled, handled his stuff um, hmm. and felt like there could be a good opportunity for him in, in Dallas. And so uh, he was the oldest of nine in a Catholic family. Mm-hmm. And so was, he a, was he a white man, your father? Yeah, my dad's a white guy. Okay. Uh, his father was uh, French Canadian. Okay. So, uh, yeah, he grew up near Montreal, Lake Champlain, New York. What uh, What effect did his did his presence have on your understanding of masculinity growing up? Um. So I don't know. I feel like. It kind of just depended on on uh, what day it was. We would be like what kind of dad we would get. So um, my dad's a little bit complicated. So he, you know, it's like you have the fun, you have the fun time dad, and then sometimes you have like the really moody, maybe like mildly alcoholic dad, um, and then like the dad that like is really into just shutting himself off into the TV room and watching lots of movies. So, um, what kind of movies was he? Uh, was he primarily a fan? Action films, <laughs> yeah. action films, westerns. Was really into watching like a lot of TV, a lot of Mash, hmm. uh, a lot just, of like kung fu talking, westerns. Yeah, I was just talking about Mash uh, a couple hours ago, actually. Mm. Yeah, yeah. My my wife Su Ling is not a Mash fan. I wouldn't say I'm a Mash fan, but I certainly saw a lot of it as a young person. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hey, I, was, I wouldn't say that I'm a Mash <laughs> fan. <laughs> I, uh, I uh, was telling her about the, the the portion of the finale. Spoiler alert! Uh, 
yeah. for MASH. Uh, the portion of the finale that was about uh, Alan Alda kind of being crazy and having PTSD because he uh, had the repressed memory of the woman like killing her baby in the back of the bus. Right. Um, that's all. I just, I don't know how this came up <laughs> in conversation with my wife, but she, she had never seen it. So I think she was a little bit uh, confused that this was the finale of like a smash sitcom but it's kind of a weird show i guess yeah i watched but i've never i know the reputation of the finale more than i've never actually seen it it's pretty weird it's it, painless yeah yeah i mean does it does that show really qualify as like a sitcom really it is a sitcom it, early dramedy yeah or like a serial i don't know a sitcom just makes it seem like really light-hearted it, yeah, yeah. I, it, I mean, there's comedic was, moments. I think it. Yeah, I think it's. I think it was an early hybrid. But I think if you had to define it, I mean, it is a situation comedy. It's just the situation is they're all in the Korean War. I mean, as, as a thinly veiled version of the Vietnam War, right? Right. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> you know, I was also thinking Ross Perot. I, when, when you mentioned him, a, a lot of memories of young childhood came flooding back, but. <laughs> I realized I have like no memory of what Ross Perot actually looks like. I only remember what Dana Carvey as His Ross Perot looked like. Right. Like I really can't summon an image of Ross Perot. Just like a small mousy guy with big ears. Yeah. He looks like a potato face. Yeah. <laughs> I remember Stockdale. Yeah. I remember Admiral Stockdale pretty well. You got a better <laughs> vision of Stockdale. Yeah. He was quite a character. He was like an old lunatic, naval, whatever. Anyway, Anna. Hi. So, so it sounds like your dad maybe in a lot of ways had a lot of traits that we would associate with kind of the traditional American father. Like maybe... A little bit alcoholic, a little <laughs> bit solitary and stoic, you know, a little bit violent, likes westerns. Is yeah. That all, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a pretty fair assessment without, uh, you know, laying down on the therapy couch. <laughs> oh, please, yeah. Um, do you feel like the type of man that your dad was has informed what you think is the right way to be a man, or do you think that... I think it's a way of being a man. I don't believe that there is a right way sure. of being a man. I mean, I you know, sure. Was there some rebellion initially? Yeah, I would say, like, when initially became romantically interested in boys or men or guys or whatever, like, yeah, the, maybe the mold was, like, a little bit more veering towards, like, a sensitive artist type you know or like really kind of even like a someone like a crispin glover like someone that's just like a little a little bit of a twist i would say twist <laughs> yeah kind of an oddball maybe a little bit weird yeah sure. <laughs> you know yeah not not this like stoic american dad kind of guy sure. Have workaholic or towards your are you, have, are you turning into your mother are you am I, <laughs> you know i think about this often yeah because you know this is what they say it's like you marry your dad and you become your mother um 
No. That's definitely. definitely. <laughs> I'm definitely you became on, you became your mother and I'm, you turned into your dad. I'm definitely on the path to marrying my dad and becoming my mother. <laughs> Good. <laughs> you haven't met my mother. Anyway. Uh, okay. Are the, would you say um, as a kid, were there any other really memorable kind of touchstones for you growing up for visions of uh, masculinity in terms uh, either in popular culture or, or otherwise that you really gravitated towards or feel like you uh, felt a lot of af- affinity for? Yeah, totally. Like, um, well, I, I think like my experience growing up, you know, it's like your tastes are informed by your parents' tastes. So like the first film that my dad ever saw in the movie theater was like Jesus Christ Superstar because mm. um, he grew up kind of religious and then uh, you know he's a recovering Catholic I guess and then uh, and then so when he when Laserdisc came out like that was like one of the first Laserdiscs that he bought and then like Blues Brothers so <laughs> those things but like definitely like one of my most formative uh experiences that I had like with popular culture and like ideas of masculinity but also like gender in general was like seeing Rocky Horror Picture Show Mm -hmm. and just having my mind blown by the idea of like a man or or, you know a cross-dressing person or you know just just the idea that gender could be something other than um this duality you know like a, or like a something other than like a hyper masculine person or like a, a traditionally like strong um male presence you know that was just like although although frankenfurter is kind of hyper masculine in his own way right he's very, right he's yeah very domineering he kind of forces himself sexually on people of yeah. all genders yeah, definitely. It was mind blowing. It he was wants just to like have complete control over his sex object. <laughs> right. Uh, how old were yeah. you when you saw Rocky? Uh, you know, maybe 12, 13. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was like incredibly erotic. I was like, what is this? Like, what's happening? Like, this is crazy. So, how do you feel about them remaking uh, Rocky Horror with Laverne Cox? Have you heard about that? No. Yeah, they're doing that. Why? <laughs> yeah, I mean, not to slag, not to slag off Laverne Cox because I don't have any negative feelings particularly about her, and we were just speaking to her uh, uh, fraternal, I guess, twin, mm-hmm. identical twin, I think, her twin last last episode. Um, but uh, I, I I do feel like Rocky Horror is one of those things that does not in any way need to be remade. Like, I think the things that are great about it are not so much inherent to the story or anything like that as they're kind of unique to the specific performers and the specific aesthetics that kind of coalesced, right? It's a time-honored parable. Yeah. Well, yeah, sure. Just stepping back a moment, and don't worry, we'll edit all this stuff out, but... Jesus Christ Superstar and the Blues Brothers. They're also very seminal movies for me. Would you say you gravitate more towards Jesus or Judas? And, <laughs> and, and then more towards Elwood or Jake Blues? Personality-wise. Personality-wise, well, definitely Judas. And then... Uh, <laughs> 
Um, wait, Jake is the uh, Jake Elwood is the is the tall one, right? Elwood is Dan Aykroyd and Jake. It, Elwood is, Belushi, yeah. uh, yeah, Jake is John Belushi. Um, yeah, maybe more Elwood than hmm. than Jake. Right. So you're kind of a Judas Elwood. <laughs> I feel like it's hard not to pick Judas just because Judas has all the best songs. Yeah, Judas has all the best songs. You know, he's got he's got some cool style. Okay. Um, you know, generally tend to root for the bad guy because he's more interesting. Come on, you know, like, he's not he, uh, he's not the bad guy. Obviously, no. The Jews no. are clearly the bad guys. Superstars. <laughs> <laughs> they all have like low evil voices they wear like black capes it's clearly yeah. the Jews are obviously the villains of Jesus Christ Superstar yeah this is true anyway. this is true <laughs> anyway um so it's uh it's the Christmas season how is you're in New York right now Anna right I'm in New York right now yeah and how how is Christmas in New York going for you so far um I I currently have about six cats in my ward because all my friends are traveling and uh so I'm I'm bouncing between different apartments it's fun I feel like I have like keys to the city you know Okay. Uh, yeah, so, so you mean the cats are spread out over these days? Because I, <laughs> yeah. I was imagining you and six cats just like taking the train from the apartment. I just got them all on a leash. Yeah, so. that'd be cool. Yeah. <laughs> that'd be cool. Um, so, Zach, you're a big fan of Christmas, right? Big fan. I like Christmas. We had a lovely Christmas uh, party over here the other night. Um but one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you this week, Anna, is because... So you have a, a fairly new band in, in L.A., uh, Hit Bargain. Yes? Yes. Uh, it's, you call it a queen core band. That's correct. Uh, we can talk more about that later. But you guys put out... I think the first song you put out is is largely lyrically inspired by what may be my favorite Christmas movie, or at least certainly one of them, which is the first uh, Die Hard movie. It's pretty much 100% lyrically inspired by right. <laughs> Die Hard. Yeah. Right. So can you talk a little bit about your relationship to Die Hard and um, maybe what what thematically you were taking from Die Hard for this song and, and so forth? Yeah, so the way that the song came about is that our guitar player, Mike Barron, wrote a guitar riff that had a feeling of action hero music uh, for me. And um, I found that living in L.A. is generally pretty weird. And um, and so this band, Hit Bargain, is, is essentially a response to living in L.A. Um, it's, it's an homage of sorts to hardcore music, which has its roots in Southern California. And then um, I wanted to pay tribute to a movie that also had its roots in California. So Die Hard came to mind. And um, my fascination with Die Hard... You could have also done L.A. Story. I could have done L.A. Story, yeah. But I, I think I just gravitated more to the, ex- the explosiveness of... The Bruce Willis franchise, sure. Die Hard, <laughs> um, and just uh, uh, the more that I I looked into it, the more uh, I just got really 
I got really into the idea of, of all of it um, because uh, I guess mostly this this idea of like an every every man action hero didn't exist so much in America cinema before. Um, Die Hard is kind of a kind of a proto. I mean, it's kind of the original for, for a certain kind of action. Yeah, yeah. It's a, they say that he's the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, and and just this idea of of a guy that's uh, you know he's he's a little he's sensitive and he's not uh, he's not all ripped like a Schwarzenegger or like a, a Rambo kind of guy you know and he's just he's just trying to do his thing he's he's a little bit estranged from his wife he doesn't balding prematurely balding you know he's like he's got something he's got he's, he's charismatic but balding yeah exactly so yeah <laughs> Yeah, and I think it's it, it is like something that I kind of associate with my dad as well because it's like my dad is is very much like a film, uh, a movie buff, and like a you know, and this was like his way of like bonding with his two daughters was just to take us to like really violent action films, you know, it's just like, or like go to Blockbuster and rent like six movies and just get a whole bunch of pizza and just like hole up in like the TV room, gigantic wall of TV, you know, it's like, that's an easy way to, to bond without talking. So (laughs) do you identify more with uh, John McClane or Hans Gruber? (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'd like to say Hans Gruber, but you know, I don't know. I'm not sure. Maybe somewhere in between the the two, the two, <laughs> a healthy mixture. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about Die Hard in before we started this conversation, and one thing that I think is an interesting lens uh, on Die Hard from the right now the contemporary perspective is it is kind of like the ultimate argument for the one good person with a gun, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Like the one good person with a gun in a building full of terrorists. So it's, it's, uh, I don't want to sully Die Hard with that unfortunate political association because I really <laughs> love Die Hard. It's one of my favorite movies. But, but it, it, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are looking at it through that uh, contemporary gun control kind of a, a filter. Yeah, that was definitely another thing that I was considering when I was writing the song. So just, um, I went away from uh, the States for a few years and I lived in France. And so my move to LA was also a return to the US. And so it was like experiencing culture shock like in not only coming back from being an expat but also living in another city and living in a in a more car oriented city after 15 years of living in New York and Paris and um, places like that so uh you know, while I was living overseas, like Occupy happened and then it, it just seemed like sort of related to Occupy also uh, a lot of mass shootings and, and then just, I feel like more climate of hysteria as well. Um, it, it's hard to have perspective on the climate of a country while you're watching it unfold through mostly like your friend's Facebook feed from afar. Or um, even domestically, that same. Yeah, domestically. I don't know. It just, uh, I, I feel like 
this idea of, of gun control and then racism and then all these other things are all kind of rolled up into like a big ball for me. Um, and it's, it's a lot to, to navigate through, you know, it's, it's, I still have this feeling of like not totally being an American, even though I inherently am American. Like it's, and I, I think that this is a sentiment that's common for a lot of people that have like left the country and then, and then, and then come back. Maybe like you, you exist in between zones almost. And do you, do you feel like writing this diehard song was in some way you processing your feelings about being an American or yeah, um, connected to your father and, uh, <laughs> Uh, I, definitely not, you know, maybe subconsciously connecting with the father, but, uh, or connecting with the fatherhood of America, maybe, <laughs> you know, of our country. the fathers of our country, our founding fathers. Yeah. Um, Die Hard is so much about like American isolationism, like, about, yeah. like this weird cold war paranoia about everywhere else in the world too. It's like an incredibly conservative movie. <laughs> well, it's, 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 it's our Bruce Willis. Yeah. yeah. Who like, but seems it's like such a cool, nice guy, yeah. but is like the brutal, most brutal, like Bush loving right. monster. Right. But see, I don't see it as that menacing. Actually, like, I see the first Die Hard as being almost like, it's especially in the context of like a post 9-11 world, like sweet in a way, like it's, it's or like naive. Um, yeah, the just the fact that the terrorists are German, but not exactly, because I guess apparently like the German that they speak in the film um, originally, I, I think maybe it's been modified, but it wasn't even actually German. I think it was just like gibberish. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. So but Alan Alan Rickman was like just making it up. That's cool. I didn't know that. But they, yeah, they're kind of an international group, right? Because you got the the shaggy Asian dude who's in you know Big Trouble and everything. Who's like in every movie in the 1980s as like a <laughs> martial arts badass that came in at some point. He's yeah. in it, and you got the American black nerd is in yeah. it. Right, it's like and this is—they're not all Germans. I mean, but I guess they're kind of German-based, right? Yeah, they're Ger- they're yeah they're German. Which maybe it, was, was an easier, more palatable villain in at that time in the '80s than if they were all Russian, because right? it was kind of Cold War, but it was like a little bit softened. Yeah, I ne- yeah I never it's, really. It's, it's taking it back to a, a an international evil that we had successfully defeated at one point. Right. So it could it's like maybe a little bit less existentially terrifying it's propaganda you know it's still it it, um pushes forward the american myth i guess or or just like our our um the idea that we have of ourselves you know it's it's reaffirming it's like yeah we're we're great right like remember all the other ways in which we are great because like well and also in in terms of the relationship between him and uh al al this is al's his name right the cop uh huh. Between the, the relation is, do you remember? And the relationship between him and the cop, it's like you know, there's this really good-hearted cop who's also black, who's also like, you know, becomes the conduit, like like that. It's about this is like a spirit of like, you know, uh, 
all Americans really pulling together and defeating Again, this alien evil. Also, uh, with the Carl Winslow is also like a maverick too. He's like a he has like to a, he has to go off the yeah. books a little bit, yeah, right. to help John McClane, right? Because he believes in his exceptionalism. Yeah. Yeah. And that that is also part of being an American Everything. as well. Yeah, it's like, well, we're all special and unique snowflakes, and we'll if we could just glass. right, if we could just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, walk over glass, and get a machine gun, then all will be well in the world. Yeah, yeah I, I wanted to mention that. So your song, the chorus, you kind of paraphrase the the, the quote from Die Hard, isn't that right? Right. Because yeah. you, because in the film, again, I haven't seen it for a while, but if I remember correctly, he says, he says, now I've got a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. Ho, ho. And in, yeah. and in your song, you say, ha, 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 right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so what was your thinking there in, the, in moving the ho, ho, ho <laughs> to. <laughs> well, I don't want to lift completely all my lyrics from Die Hard okay. dialogue, but I yeah. Guess we're going to have to agree to disagree on that. <laughs> as far as what, whether or not it's appropriate to lift the lyrics directly from a movie or film dialogue. No, no, no. But, or, but anyway, go on. So, so, so you were just trying to put your own kind of stamp on it by not I, correctly quoting John McClane. Oh. Uh, a little bit, but you know, thinking about one of the jokes that I have about Hit Bargain is that we're making feminist anthems for um, single white male gunmen shooters. Okay. <laughs> Expound, Expound on that. Uh, it's just a dirty joke, really. So, <laughs> my my the band is. Uh, is four dudes hanging out. It's me with three other dudes. So this is this is uh, this is how I explain the band. And um, we've all played in in touring bands, but none of us have been in maybe something as rock or as uh, hardcore inspired as this project. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess you know maybe we're also exploring our ideas of masculinity in the music. Um, but I feel like as, as, uh, the dude that looks like a lady in the band, um, there is like a little bit of a responsibility to kind of touch upon certain themes, um, in, in the lyrics and, and for the music. And so, uh, in saying that the band is a queen core band, it's the um, the way that I explain it is it's the intersection of hardcore queening and and queer, mm-hmm. and um, and so I'm bringing these these elements into the performance and 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 a little bit to the lyrics. But ultimately, I, the way that I feel about music is once it's out there, it doesn't really belong to you. Um, kind of belongs to the listener and and their interpretation of it so it's like i can i can uh think about these themes all i want and and stick them in there but you know ultimately people are going to take away whatever they want to take away from the experience and from the music itself do your bandmates identify as heterosexual yeah so this is a, a little bit I wouldn't say it's a 
point of contention, but it's um, I really like pushing people out of their comfort zone, including my bandmates. So, uh, you know, it's we all have the same goal, and that's to have fun and make good music. Um, and, this, you know, some people aren't totally um, comfortable with something that they perceive as as overtly political. But I was like, oh, this like is... Die hard. Like Die Hard, for example. Yeah, for sure. But um, this is this is my contribution to the project, so... All right, and let me let me just. I'm gonna throw out a few uh, male icons of hardcore music history. Yeah, and I want to get just a quick capsule, one sentence. Uh, your response to them. Your your thoughts. Okay. I'm probably gonna do terrible on okay, this. Okay, ready? Here we go. <laughs> okay. If if you don't have a clearly formed response, you can just start speaking uh, gibberish German. <laughs> okay. Henry Rollins. Uh, isn't Henry Rollins like the quintessential hardcore dude? Yeah. So, yeah. Glenn Danzig. <laughs> Glenn Danzig is like Henry Rollins' um, shadow side, I'd say, with a devil's lock. Ian, Ian Mackay. Ian Mackay is a talking head now. Maybe at one point a very earnest... Uh, vegan. HR of bad brains. <laughs> HR of bad brains is amazing. <laughs> also hates gay people, though. Yeah, so a little complicated, you John, know. John Joseph of the Cro-Mags. Of the Cro-Mags. Um, Echt Wein Bean Eine Kaffee Bita. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> So, I, I did all right. You did, you did pretty well. You did pretty well. For not a hardcore fan. You did pretty well. Yeah. Um, you're not alone in being not a big hardcore Anyway, <laughs> uh, last thing I want to just ask you about in terms of uh, Hit Bargain and, and, and that stuff. Um, in some of your performances, you do employ a human carpet, <laughs> right? Right. You do stand on a... Uh, man who is predisposed to enjoy that kind of sublimation and they come out specifically for the purpose of being stood on by you and sometimes audience members, right? Right. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts about how that idea connects perhaps to uh, the idea presented in in your father's first meeting with your mother in Thai culture, (laughs) having your head lower than uh, another person right yeah so um this idea of trampling um is a i'd say like visually interesting for the audience um it's enjoyable for the person being trampled on um and it's enjoyable and interesting for me as well and i think that uh the people that gender or men let's just let's be more specific i guess men that enjoy being trampled on by women um are into this this sort of femdom or female domination sort of fetish um 
and it's uh, I think it's a way to subvert power dynamics openly in a constructive way um, it plays around with conventions of gender and uh, yeah is I, I think that for some people it's like a way of showing respect to women uh, I think it's very theatrical though so it's 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 kind of it's like is it really is it really a situation where the woman is in charge or is it really a situation where the man is in charge because he's the one that's getting the erotic thrill from being stood on or well, of course most people involved in in BDSM culture would say that the the sub is in fact in control at all yeah. times right. right yeah do you do you uh uh it, is it purely a performative or political act for you when you're doing it on stage are you asking me if I'm also getting an erratic charge from standing on a person or what is that's what I'm implying <laughs> um does it matter uh, really it's just a point of curiosity it's a point of curiosity yeah Zach, um, is, Zach is very interested in women so <laughs> he wants to get it all <laughs> and what kind of women <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah um yeah I'm, I'm gonna stick with that answer I'd say Fair enough. yeah I'm gonna answer your question with a question oh what kind of women <laughs> what kind of women <laughs> what kind of women? I, th I think it's yes all, all women <laughs> ba uh, babies matter do your uh are the are just just to make this conversation go furthermore awkward uh <laughs> are your uh participants during these performances are they like are they just picked out during the uh, during the performance or are they pre-selected for oh i see um well our f yeah i would say like a bandmate or like a fifth beetle who just comes out <laughs> human carpet i really I, I like that idea it's not um only a human carpet well i guess so the first show that we performed um I invited a guy that worked at a coffee shop next to my work to to be a part of it, and we staged essentially a wrestling match mm -hmm. um, during during some of the songs. So, which I think definitely piqued uh, Sam's interest in the project. So, um, and then this this gentleman Matt Johnson who has. Um, who joined us for our, our last performance was recommended to me um, by a woman in a fetish group, actually. Okay. Uh, but he is a, a uh, yeah, he is a um, a stunt person and then a, a, a human carpet for hire. He does a lot of uh, fetish events and, and things of this sort, videos, I believe, as well. So this isn't just spur of the moment. It's, it's pre 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 organized. Pre pre screened yeah. in a TSA kind of way. Yeah. Um, so far, yeah. So far, I would I would say you know that it's all uh, pre screened and consensual, and you know making sure that everyone, including my bandmates, are comfortable and happy. How comfortable and happy are your bandmates with? <laughs> uh, you know, I I think as long as there's no danger of, of anyone 
truly getting hurt and they're pretty comfortable and happy with it so yeah. um so i i think uh unless there's anything else yeah let's do it maybe we should get down to this uh race of man all right anna are you ready i think so okay question so, mark anna as our guest, we welcome you to submit the first and new entrant this week into the race of man. Okay. Um, I would like to nominate Alan Watts. Ooh. Wait, what? Alan Watts. Alan Watts. Yeah. Plead your case. <laughs> or or uh, to begin, for the, for the benefit of our listeners, just... A quick synopsis of Alan Watts and your thoughts on on the man. Yeah, I, I would say that Alan Watts um, is a philosopher and is someone who maybe popularized uh, Eastern themes to a Western audience um, in a very tangible way. Yes. Yes. And- what are you, you? Do you have personal experiences or personal relationships or personal feelings to him about about Alan Watts? Um, yeah, I would say that this is a fairly recent discovery for me, inspired uh, partially by some friends who have a band uh, named for him. But um, I'm a, I'm a fan of his his lectures. Um, and I think that it's it touches upon ideas that are relevant. Okay. Okay. So you have the list, yes? Uh, I have to look at it again. Let me see. Please do. Pull it up in the phone. Okay. You know what? Actually, you guys. You talk. You, you place Alan Watts. I'm gonna grab a cure. I'm gonna bring him down here. Okay. Let me see. He's got some rocking to do. Place My phone is okay. Here we go. Um. So now I place him on this list so numerically. Yes. So what we, I mean, based on the criteria, completely objective criteria of how you define uh, the quality of man. Uh huh. Uh, where would Alan Watts fit amongst this uh, in this spectrum of of masculinity? Okay. And is the criteria like the value of their masculinity, or it's purely uh, objective? So okay, you are purely subjective, rather. So you, subjective. You tell us. Uh, it's it's how you understand masculinity. Uh, what and I I can, we, I can clarify by saying that if you can look at this list and see uh, a kind of a, a through line of uh, a lot of the people that we've placed on this list are super self actualized. Oh, oh, sad baby in the room. Oh, baby. Uh, Hyper self actualized to the point of kind of. Uh, Pathological existence. Hey, Kira. Hi. <laughs> Hi. You're snotty. <laughs> uh, this is Kira's first uh, appearance on the podcast. Welcome to the show. Appropriate. He's a burgeoning man himself. Unless yeah. you decide otherwise at a later day. Mm-hmm. 
with a name like that. Um, <laughs> Sam, uh, I was just going into uh, some of the criteria. Some of the criteria that we have some used of the criteria. to place mm-hmm. these these men historically. Yep. So where are you, where are you two leaning here? Uh, we haven't had an assessment yet. I would. Let's uh, hear it. Let's hear it. Real quick, we ain't got a lot of time here. Yeah. So let's, yeah. I would. Say, You're looking at the list. You have the list. Yeah. I have the list. Yeah. So where would, where do you? Want I would to like to place him at number eight. Number eight. Yeah. Number eight. You're, you're saying above Sir Christopher Lee. I am saying that. Yes. Cozy with John Cage. That seems pretty fitting. Yeah. I thought so as well. And then above L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah. Yeah. You think that... And above Abraham Lincoln. You think... Yeah. Lincoln. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's that's the only thing that's, like, maybe a little tricky. So, it's interesting that L. Ron Hubbard is a better man than Abraham Lincoln. He's not. No, 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 he's lower. He's lower. He's lower. He's okay. Number one is the best. Number 15 is the worst. I see. Okay. I'm a girl. I'm not good with numbers. Um, not to yeah. mention. Oh, no. Half Asian <laughs> would be helpful, right? Half, not to mention half white. <laughs> yeah, that's not, that's not the math half. So, um, yeah. I'm saying number eight. Number eight? Mm-hmm. Between John Cage and Sir Christopher Lee, mm-hmm. movies Dracula, mm-hmm. Count Dooku. Sam? Uh, you know, I'm going to be honest. I, I have about as much of a relationship to Alan Watts as um, Anna apparently has to John Joseph of the Cro-Mags. <laughs> so I, while I'm aware of him, I, I, I don't... I don't have a lot to contribute. There's no, there's no resonance. Yeah. There's not a great resonance. I haven't read any of his books. I haven't seen mm-hmm. any of his lectures. So, I, I'm going to have to somewhat defer to my my colleagues um, on the Alan Watts placement. I think that's a suitable place for me, uh, though. I do feel like we have now sort of relegated Abraham Lincoln to a lower stature than he maybe should have. Uh, I think I mean we could do one of these we could do one of these deals. You know, we could we could be we could say we could put Abe Lincoln at eight and then Alan Watts is the new number nine. We could do one of these switch 'em ups. Are you saying that we're just gonna keep moving Christopher Lee <laughs> it down? It seems like Christopher Lee is really suffering, but <laughs> I feel good. He was in Attack of the Clones. So I want to I wanna just be firm. Uh, yes, I've please. had some feedback from, I'm into the, from the listening audience that I should be more firm about the uh, race of man placement. And mm-hmm. I think eight right beneath John Cage, uh, who I think is maybe, in my opinion, a superior uh, Eastern e- Buddhist. Yeah. Eastern culture sure. fetishist. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Great. I like it. I'm with it. Sam? Watts. Sam, do you have a contribution to the race of man this week i do have a contribution to the race of man um and it's it's a timely one mm. um you know uh sorry pardon me um my contribution is a man who we all know he is a uh, creator some would argue a destroyer mm. uh un, un, inarguably an auteur mm. And that is uh, Mr. George Lucas. Oh. George Lucas. 
also kind of an espouser of uh, Eastern philosophies in, in a backdoor, backdoor kind of way. Um, is this a uh, is this a low baller that you're throwing in here? <laughs> I mean, I don't want to color your judgment too much, mm-hmm. but I would, if if I was the sole arbiter of this list, I would probably let me just scroll I'd down. Get scroll George, down to the George bottom down here, down see what we're looking at. Um, you know, George, he is what he is. He he created uh, the most profitable beloved franchise of all time mm-hmm. that meant a lot to many of us in our childhoods and uh, you know also made uh, THX and some other and American Graffiti I guess mm-hmm. and that's uh, George Lucas you know he's kind of a weird nebbish billionaire jerk yeah. whatever <laughs> Uh, just a topical for sure he made he made the prequels that was the thing yeah um successful franchise but people love him you know so people don't love him really (laughs) different i'm sorry i'm so distracted by akira here on my lap uh people have a lot of feelings about george lucas yeah he's a polarizing figure he's had a massive impact on culture for better or worse He's had a massive impact on the uh, capitalization of culture in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also distracted by this child. On that's your okay. Lap. He's a mess. That's I gotta okay. just let the listening audience know that this child is a mess. It's a Mackenzian <laughs> moppet. He's like a terrible street urchin. Um, so yeah, George Lucas. I would I would consider him probably gunning for fairly fairly deep down there but uh where's your placement you know anna are you familiar with george lucas uh somewhat yeah i i I would say that maybe i'm like a little resistant to george lucas Mm -hmm. yeah and i think that places me in the minority not necessarily Uh, i don't think you know uh, I don't know. I mean, I just—it's a—it's a wildly popular franchise. I'm going to tell kind you, of in spite of George Lucas. Here's 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 if, if in spite of George Lucas. Yeah, I don't know too much about George Lucas, the man. If Akira and I had our druthers, here's where we're putting George Lucas mm-hmm. on this list. I'm going to say just below Andy Kaufman. Mm. Just above George, his fellow George, Mr. Clooney. Two Georges? Yeah. Yeah. And my argument for that would be, say what you will about George Lucas. Mm. He is certainly a man who has been the sole uh, dominator over his own universe to a fault. He, he created something, and then as time went on, he was the complete um, Undoing. Un- untested, unquestioned monarch of that universe. The same and could be said for Trent Reznor. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is the very idea of masculinity, you know? Well, that's, yeah. Therefore, that's, this is the only reason that I'm putting him above George Clooney, who is much more handsome than George Lucas, (laughs) but has not been such a monstrous... In like a Nescafe kind of way? Yes, but has not been such a monstrous 
uh, ego the living planet controller of any large sphere of culture the way that George Lucas has. Mm. So, my argument would be George Lucas goes below Andy Kaufman, above George Clooney. Mm. Do I hear any conflicting viewpoints? You know how I feel about George Clooney. But, <laughs> I do. Uh, that is a, uh, uh, that, I mean, that's going to be a point of contention for, I think, the re- as long as this list exists. Um, I, I, I'm kind of ambivalent about George Lucas. Uh, I feel the same. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I'm not arguing. <laughs> Okay, that's it. That's George it. Lucas, our new uh, third from the bottom. Yeah. Whatever that's called. I, I think that's, yeah, that's a good placement for him. Zach? Um, inspired by the season, uh, as late as it might be, uh, my contribution to the list this week is uh, <clears throat> mega producer uh, and, con- and great contributor to uh, the Christmas season, uh, even though he is a Jewish man, uh, Phil Spector. Uh, Phil Spector uh, was an, an was also an auteur in his own right, a musical auteur, creator of the Wall of Sound, uh, mega influential, uh, and pretend and. and Potentially considered like the uh, originator of the music producer, I kind uh, of the original Svengali. The Sven, yeah, the original Svengali. Um, uh, some great, uh, some great anecdotes about Phil Spector. Loved guns uh, a lot. Used it as a tool for uh, music production. Very famously uh, had kept a a loaded pistol on the mixing board while recording the Ramones uh, end of the century record. Um, my favorite anecdote about Phil Spector is that he allegedly created a golden coffin. That's my favorite anecdote. Yeah. <laughs> he, he had a golden coffin made for his wife, Ronnie Spector, uh, which he kept in the basement of their home to remind her that uh, if, he, if she was ever to betray him, there was always the golden coffin waiting for her in the basement. Um, also, obviously, a convicted murderer, uh, which, um, you know, I don't know how that sways a person uh, in, in respect to their masculinity. Um, but personally... It's doing pretty good for OJ. No, I guess OJ wasn't a convicted murderer. He was just a convicted uh, extorter of sports memorabilia. Yes. Um, but yeah, I, I'm a I'm a big fan of uh, uh, Phil Spector's work as a producer and also as a uh, sociopath. Um, so I would place <laughs> Phil Spector pretty high on the list uh, in the race of man. Also, he wore a lot of wigs. Wore a lot of tremendous wigs. Um, hung around with a lot of great uh, monsters. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I would say let's look at what we're looking at here on the list. My placement for Spectre. Hmm. I'd say I like Spectre above the Riza number five on the list. That's where I'm thinking Phil Spectre lands. Bless. 
You are just covered in your own filth, child. <laughs> really, don't don't give people an inaccurate view of my son. Please. So below below the two Richard yeah. for Phil. Below the two Richards. And below Kobe. Below Kobe. Uh, that's more, I mean, honestly, no, I would put him above Kobe, but I'm trying to be diplomatic. Mm-hmm. Anna, your thoughts on, on Phil Spector? Uh, uh, you know, not, not so nice to women. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that guy. Um, but of our three nominees today, most interesting, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah. Has has a residence, definitely. I agree. I agree with this placement for sure. You're saying between Kobe and Riza, you're comfortable with? Uh, I am. Yeah, I am saying that. Yeah. Sam. Listen, I love Phil Spector. <laughs> All I can say though is that Phil Spector never trained in the martial arts and had a superhero costume made for him to patrol the streets of New York at night kung fuing shoplifters. He did wear a lot of capes, though. He did wear capes. He did wear capes. Um, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go along. Just for, just for the spirit of democracy, I'm going to go along and uh, That's the Christmas seed. spirit. In the Christmas... <laughs> The true spirit of Christmas. I'm going to agree to put Phil Spector at this place on the list about the Rizzo. So he's in there. All right. Phil cool. Spector, not quite as good as Kobe Bryant, <laughs> the uh, lame duck, uh, you know, star star uh, player of the Los Angeles Lakers, but. As as we find a little bit better than the Rizzo. Yeah, his downfall was Phil Spector's downfall is a little bit more uh, dramatic than Kobe's, maybe. Uh, so Kobe goes out on top a little bit. Sure, you know? sure. Okay, well there we go. That's, That's great. it. So we did it. High fives. Um, Anna. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Everything. Akira. <laughs> Hey, hi. What are you doing? He's doing good. <laughs> and uh, we wish you all a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year from the uh, from the Isle of Man, right? Yeah. It's too long. No, it's good. It's what happens. comments and sponsorship ideas follow us on twitter at, at isle of man pod
Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas. Merry Bye Christmas. You. Make yourself useful. <laughs> I'm gonna fight. I'm gonna fight. Right. I'm gonna fight, and then he like sort of yells, "You lost me at Butler Robot." That's fine. <laughs> <laughs>